on today's episode of Must Rewatch TV. I take a ferry to Crockett Island, but I do so with a nod to The Slow Burn, a show with sweeping themes, brilliantly written and executed dialogue, and a spectacular cinematography. Midnight Mass might not be for everyone, but it is for this TV fanatic. Elevated horror at its best from the mind of one of horror's leading director's writers, Mike Flanagan. This is a show everyone should watch at least once. This was a rewatch long overdue, but it seemed like the best time to discuss a show that stayed with me long after watching and offered me a master class in filmmaking and powerful moments of deep reflection. Which episode? Well, to understand Midnight Mass, Mike Flanagan, and the critical themes of the series, it is essential to start from the beginning with book one, Genesis. There won't be any jump scares, but feeling uncomfortable and unnerved is undoubtedly on the menu. So, save a spot by the bubbler and join the rewatch. We tend to dislike mysteries. We feel uncomfortable not knowing. The more that we know, the less we bend, the more brittle we become. the easier to break. Hello everyone and welcome back to Must Rewatch TV. I'm your host, Zach. All right, everyone, welcome back. And today we're going to be taking on a show that I am just giddy and excited to finally dive into on this podcast. Again, I know that we're only in the 11th episode, but I feel like I waited too long to take on a series created by one of my favorite writers and directors in the entire horror genre, an individual who I credit with creating in what I, what can only be described as elevated horror, and that is Mike Flanagan. So I'm going to be taking on one of his most recent shows called Midnight Mass. And this show is just absolutely incredible. And I know what you're saying. I say that about every show that I cover. Well, you're right. I only cover the shows that I absolutely and utterly love. So it was a matter of time that I was going to take on a show created by Flanagan, who I'm, yes, it's true. I'm probably going to take the first couple minutes of this podcast just to gush all about his work, his catalog, what he's created, and just why I cannot stop watching Midnight Mass. And so be warned that there's probably going to be some spoilers about Midnight Mass throughout today's podcast while I will be watching episode one, which is book one, Genesis, I'm definitely going to take a little bit of time, especially in the early portion of the show, to kind of go over the entire series itself. What I what I saw is the themes, the kind of characteristics, things that just kind of stood out to me, even from, say, episode three or four or seven, doesn't really matter. I just want to kind of go over some major aspects of the series that still stand out to me to this day. But ultimately, I want to kind of take this opportunity to talk about the show, and that ultimately might be that I give away the hidden secrets of the show or the spoilers. And so you're warned. If you haven't seen Midnight Mass at this point, maybe go watch it first, then kind of come back and uh, listen to the podcast. So before getting into Midnight Mass itself, let me start by doing what I just said I was going to do, gush. And I'm gushing over Mike Flanagan. Again, he has created, yet once again, a show that I just cannot get out of my head. Again, this is a guy that establishes incredible cinematic sequences. I remember the first film of Flanagan's I watched. I watched it just around 2012, I believe. I watched this film in Hawaii. It was a film called... Absentia. Absentia is an absolutely unique and, and, and terrifying film. Again, it's not the greatest film that has ever been made. It's, it's a good movie, but it's haunting. The way in which Flanagan created a cinematic scene, this kind of creating this boundary around the horror genre, was just absolutely and utterly incredible. I was blown away. And since that time, I have continuously followed the work of Mike Flanagan. And it's interesting, I was listening to a podcast a couple years ago. It was The Rewatchables, a Bill Simmons podcast, and he actually had Quentin Tarantino on it. And it was interesting because Tarantino was talking about some of the directors that he follows. And one of the directors that he is also following, and he can't can't get enough of is Mike Flanagan, mainly because, as he said, he creates incredible horror. The movie that Tarantino talked about that he remembered loving 
so much was actually Ouija 2. Again, you might say, okay, it's a sequel. The first one was absolute trash, everyone. But the point was, is that Flanagan did not create the first one. He took over and created the second one. It really is its own standalone film. It's that good. Again, I have been watching Flanagan since 2011, 2012, and I just love it. Hush, his film that came out on Netflix that, that was actually starring his wife, Kate Siegel. Again, this was another movie that was just absolutely haunting. Not because there was jump scares, although they exist. Not that because there were any monsters. There weren't. Well, there was a human monster, I guess you could say. But there was this way that he crafted this kind of psychological horror in a way that just made it far more terrifying. Oftentimes with other movies that he's done, like Doc Sleep and Oculus, uh, Before I Wake, you have really good monologues, you have really good dialogue, you have really wonderful cinematography, even the scores, the original scores of those films are just absolutely fantastic. But I will be honest, it's the first series that really said, this is a guy that is incredible and brilliant, were two shows, the first being The Haunting of Hill House and the second being The Haunting of Bly Manor. The Haunting of Hill House is just one of my favorite shows ever. It is a creepy, terrifying, and haunting show, but it is brilliant. It's beautiful. It's There's beauty in the terrifyingness and in the drama and in the sorrow of the story itself. The Newton brothers did the score for The Haunting of Hill House and The Haunting of Bly Manor, and it's just wonderful. The Newton brothers create scores in horror films that I use to relax. That's how good not only the shows are at creating really wonderful themes and storylines and plots that are just deep, really deep, but also have scores that kind of enhance the storyline and enhance the plots and really make the viewer like myself feel the drama, feel the kind of trepidation, feel not necessarily the evil or the horror, not necessarily, but to really feel the storyline and feel the sorrow, uh, the remorse, and just everything that is kind of being infused in these shows. So again, Flanagan he has just continued to elevate the horror genre. I just love his work. But to be quite honest, while I love Haunting of Hill House and Bly Manor, and I'm sure that I'm going to take on episodes of those shows in the future, Midnight Mass is still my favorite. So after a week where I spent myself kind of focusing and enjoying, you know, adult animation, I knew that I just had to come back to the dark. As a horror fan, I feel that this is an appeal that is oftentimes misunderstood and really brushed to the side. I know that shows that people will usually often think about when it comes to horrors, you know, like American Horror Story and things like that. I hate that stuff. I don't like that. Again, when I think of horror and I think of Mike Flanagan, these are shows that are not about monsters or jump scares or violence. Although they might have all of those things and all of those things might appear, but ultimately the true evil or horror is aligned with reality, showing that greed and selfishness is far worse than things that go bump in the night. That everyone, for me, is the power of Flanagan's work. And especially when it comes to, say, Midnight Mass, he combines a history of Catholic instruction that is infused with kind of Catholicism and other religious understandings that give you a really unique viewing experience. Especially for a show like Midnight Mass, again, I grew up myself, I was raised or had of an upbringing in Roman Catholicism, and so watching this show made me, <laughs> it constantly brought me back to my childhood and going to Mass, making First Communion, Confirmation, being an altar boy, just like Riley and his brother Warren. This show definitely was infused with tons of Catholic imagery as well as traditions, not in a way that is quite patronizing to the religion. Again, I don't follow the religion any longer, but it, it didn't patronize it. It wasn't using it necessarily as a prop. The show is infused with those things. In this case, religion is kind of a byproduct by which we see the horrors that are now going to grip, say, Crockett Island. Religion is at the center of that, both its beauty and as well as its drawbacks, both where we see faithfulness as well as we see, in many ways, fanaticism. We see that maybe with Bev Keen, where we see with Annie Flynn, the kind of Annie Flynn being the true believer and Bev Keen, in many ways, being the, the heretic. That's what I have always liked about Flanagan's work, and that's why I consider it a kind of elevation of the horror genre, not something that is patronizing, not something that is doing something for violence sake. He is using it as a kind of connective thread, doing so to make the individual viewer ponder and interpret things that are quite real. And so he's using these kind of, whether they be monsters or things that are hiding under bridges or, you know, kind of paranormal aspects, he uses those things to oftentimes ask really, really hard questions. 
So as I said, kind of Midnight Mass, an incredibly tantalizing show. Again, really not dissimilar to, as I said before, The Haunting of Hill House or The Haunting of Bly Manor. Again, they have an incredible pace, slow oftentimes by a lot of people's standards. But me, I love a slow burn, which is why I'm focusing on the first episode today. But it also allows for incredible character development, the buildup of a haunting score and musical tracks. And that's why I'm constantly in love with this particular genre and Flanagan himself. Midnight Mass is, again, a deep introspective on faith, responsibility, loss, second chances. Again, it's flooded with brilliant written monologues, stellar acting performances, sharp cinematography. Again, it is a thrilling horror mystery. It is a story with a flawed protagonist, Riley Flynn, played by Zach Guilford, and a charismatic and mysterious antagonist, Father Paul, played by Hamish Linklitter. Again, strangely, by the end of the show, neither of these individuals are at the heart of the events on Crockett Island. Characters like Aaron Green, played by Katie Seagal, or Bev Keen, played brilliantly, brilliantly by Samantha Sloan. Together, they in many ways serve as the good Aaron versus the evil Bev. Again, this is a multidimensional, imperfect, and wonderfully complicated characters. That's what makes it so incredibly fascinating. And I do really enjoy the fact that Flanagan oftentimes employs actors from previous shows. But again, let me go over a, a few of these performances, especially Aaron portrayed by Siegel. Again, this is a character that in this show is just looking for some sort of a better life. She's portrayed, especially in the first episode, as being pregnant, something that brings her back to Crockett Island. Riley, as I said, played by Zach Guilford, traumatic and flawed center of all of Midnight Mass, especially the events that are going to take place in the early stages on Crockett Island. This is a man who in the early episode, as we'll talk about, is convicted of a horrific crime, a terrible crime, and is going to be haunted by the visions of a young woman whose death he caused. Some of those scenes in the first episode are just brilliant. Again, then we also have characters like Sheriff Hassan, played by Rao Cowley. Again, this is a single father mourning his late wife, seeking peace for his family on an island far away from what he perceived was the bigotry, inherent skepticism because of his Islamic faith, because he is a Muslim. He he believes that especially on an island like this, there should be an affirmation of his religious freedom, but there will be some, I'm looking at you, Bev Keen, who will not be providing him this safety, this feeling of comfort or close-knit community. But of course, my favorite character in this entire series, I just absolutely love this character as well as the actor's performance, and that is Hamish Linkletter as Father Paul. So Hamish Linklater plays Father Paul, and spoiler alert, but he also is the character of Monsignor Pruitt, something that we'll kind of find out as the series goes. He exudes a performance I found absolutely utterly mesmerizing. Sure, Father Paul slash Monsignor Pruitt is, is the villain, somewhat, but not the mysterious entity, not the sinister human. These positions are clearly more aligned um, and reserved for this angel slash demon slash vampire slash monster that he will eventually meet in Damascus that will eventually be brought back. Back to Crockett Island. And of course, Bev Keen. I mean, Bev Keen is the clear villain of this entire series. We know that from episode one. We certainly know that because of her actions in episode two, but that is a different story. Father Paul, Monsignor Pruitt, he is a severely flawed man. He's one who seeks immortality, but he's certainly seeking a second chance. No matter how well intended his actions, he opens up Pandora's box of mayhem and destruction that he will be unable to close. Again, his actions, sure, they're bathed in religious conviction. They come from place of incorrectly attributed religious views and a selfish desire to relive his past and bring out from a haunting darkness of dementia the character of Mildred Gunning, played by Alex Esso, who he, we find, will find out as episodes go, he is in love with and has had a child with, even though he is a Monsignor on Crockett Island. But again, Father Paul, a man who was once lost, his, his memory was gone, he lost himself, is now, as the show goes on, a reborn individual. He sees his actions as aligned with his beliefs, and thus he sees all his actions as justified. Linklater shined throughout Midnight Mass. This required, in many ways, a kind of preacher to straddle the line of kind of zealot and a compassionate listener. He wanted to offer salvation, no matter the cost. But that offer is born out of a conviction to do good. Unlike Bev Keen, grace and humility illustrated Linklater's character, his monologues, his religious eagerness, and his performance as an old man in a young body. Father Paul, as this youthful minister, is enchanting. 
Amish Linklater manifests this passion. It makes his character's agenda both attractive and diabolical. In Book 3, Proverb, the monologue confessional aided by the score was absolutely and utterly haunting. I was mesmerized by his journey to the Holy Land, how it wove together throughout the episode, his kind of terminus occupying the Stations of the Cross. As I said, there is so much Catholicism just seeped within this show that individuals who are Catholic are really going to pick up on all of these nuances. Again, the monologue is explained in biblical terminology and it supports, in many ways, Father Paul's truth that the creature that we're seeing throughout this entire series is an angel because in many ways, the alternative is unconscionable. Father Paul is not a bad person. Monsignor Pruitt is not a bad person. And so they cannot see this thing as what it actually is. It has to be something angelic. It has to be something giving eternal youth for good reasons, not for bad. So as you can already conclude, I think Hamish Linkletter in this was an absolute delight to watch. He was impressive. How he was not nominated for either an Emmy or a Golden Globe and didn't win both of those, I, I have absolutely no idea. Again, as a Catholic myself, I thought Flanagan nailed the intensity of the church proceeding. Flanagan added an intensity to this show by offering a realistic understanding of mass and allowing Linkletter to exude that process with a re righteous religious determination. Again, the orchestra dance of Catholic Mass, the robes, the music, the homily sermon, made those scenes scattered throughout the series just absolutely beautiful and worked in conjunction with making this an elevated horror. You could utilize a jump scare from time to time. You have a monster slash demon slash vampire utilized in this while you also have real human monsters like Bev Keen, while you have real things taking place, real sadness, real sorrow, economic downfall of this community. You have real things that are taking place that are making the viewers sit on the edge of their seat and just kind of weep. Again, the original music, again, always helped to achieve this. I'm a huge fan of original scores. We've talked about the Newton brothers are the composers of Midnight Mass. They were the also the composers of The Haunting of Hill House, as well as The Haunting of Bly Manor. They are fantastic. The one thing that I will say going into Midnight Mass, when I saw that this was going to be a show that kind of at the center of it was religion, I wasn't really as excited. I was pretty pessimistic about the score of this show going in. That was a blatant knee-jerk reaction, and I was completely and utterly wrong. This score is one of my favorite. It is hauntingly beautiful, both the instrumental and those hymns created and reimagined by the Newton brothers. Again, I was mesmerized by their instrumental creation for the nearer my God to thee and where you there. But the series itself also had some really good songs added in throughout the entire series. Midnight Mass had several uses of Neil Diamond songs, and one of the ones that I loved was during the montage scene in Book 3 Proverbs. As church membership was growing because of the quote-unquote miracle that took place, people were feeling young, mainly because there's something going on that is actually making them much more youthful. Flanagan utilized Holly Holy, illustrating faith in an incredibly uplifting way. I can't stress enough the soundtrack for Midnight Mass, both its original score and the utilization of songs was just incredible uh, an accompaniment to the visual uh, medium that you're also seeing. Let's start to get into some of the technical details about the series and then some of the details about the episode that I'll be focusing on. So Midnight Mass came out on September 24th, 2021. Again, it aired as a limited series on Netflix, which means that it was only seven episodes. It was, as I said, created, directed, and written by Mike Flanagan. Cinematography, which I found to be outstanding, this was done by Michael Fim Ognari. The musical score was done by the Newton Brothers, which I've talked about. And here's just a little bit of the plot of the series. And I know I've gone over a lot of the things, but it's important to kind of have a basic understanding of what the plot is. This is an original idea created by Mike Flanagan, a tale of a small, isolated island community whose existing divisions are amplified by the return of a disgraced young man, Riley Flynn, and the arrival of a charismatic priest named Father Paul. When Father Paul's appearance on Crockett Island coincides with an unexplained and seemingly miraculous event, a renewed religious fervor takes hold of the community. But do these miracles come at a price? This is such an incredible show. It's deep. It's dark. The monologues are just absolutely beautiful and wonderful. The way in which the camera will capture certain scenes, the way that he, that Flanagan will use light and dark flashing lights, as well as kind of turning the camera or overhead shots, long shots, which Flanagan is very well known at doing. This is just how you, how you elevate the horror genre. This is what I enjoy the most is this kind of psychologicalness. Sure. There's a monster in this, but ultimately 
not the most important part of this show. It's the character development. And so today I decided to focus on book one, Genesis. This is the very first episode. So I guess you could say the pilot episode is actually the lowest rated episode on IMDb coming in at 7.3. But for me, it is a slow burn episode, which not a lot of people like, but I do. I love slow burns. I love episodes that establish everything that's going to be important for the rest of the series. And so that is what really this episode does. It introduces all the characters. I feel like they all get a good, couple moments to shine. It does what is necessary. And so, as I said, it ran for 59 minutes. Again, the plot of this episode is that Riley Flynn returns home to family dysfunction, familiar faces, and a new priest at St. Patrick's. Elsewhere on the island, a dark storm is brewing. Let's get into it. Let's start breaking this series down scene by scene. So Midnight Mass starts with a very dark, dark introduction, I guess you could say. You're hearing the Neil Diamond song, In the Grass Won't Pay No Mind. Again, it's starting with the flickering police lights reflecting off a Jesus fish that is attached to a car. And we're seeing two cars now crashed. An accident has taken place. We're in Chicago. You can tell by the Illinois license plate and the skyline in the back of you. We are effectively opening up a series with a tragic car accident and centering around Riley, an individual who is who has caused this accident. How do we know that? Because he is literally handcuffed on the side of the street as two paramedics are doing CPR on a young girl on the street and constantly seeing some wonderful camera work by which we're focusing on Riley. We're seeing the CPR taking place on the young girl as we're looking over the shoulder of Riley as his Harms are handcuffed behind him. Police officers investigating the car. They're finding alcohol bottles or vodka. Clearly, Riley is drunk. He is even asking the paramedic that is working on him because he is bloody. And he's even asking, is she going to be okay? Is she going to be okay? And I love how the camera is panning to the paramedics who, who at this point are going to stop doing their CPR. They're checking the pulse of the girl. Then the camera will turn to Riley, who looks incredibly concerned at this time. And once he starts to see that, oh, it looks like this girl is not going to survive, who has been thrown out of her car after the accident that you have clearly caused, he starts to shake his head. No, 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 is even mumbling as they stop and declare the young girl dead. As the camera now pans to her and as her head kind of leans to the left shattered glass all on the left side of her face and her eyes are still open, she's she's looking in many ways directly at Riley. I and mean, he starts praying the Our Father. As he's saying that the paramedic that's working on him kind of cuts in and he's like, hey, well, you know, while you're praying, while you're at it, Ask him why um, he always takes the kids while the drunk fucks walk away with scratches. That is brutal and a good brutal because Riley deserves that. You have been drinking. You caused an accident that has cost the life of this young girl. You deserve everything that's going to happen to you after this point. It's a, it's a brutal honesty that is so necessary for that moment because this is a series that is centering itself around this flawed protagonist. Riley is our protagonist in the early stages of this show. In this first scene, which is so dark, the imagery is so perfect, the flashing police lights reflecting off things like a Jesus fish or glass on the ground, a glass on the girl's face, or his own eyes. We are seeing some incredible imagery. And that line by that paramedic is chilling. Add that to the Neil Diamond song music that is playing over this entire scene, and you are just absolutely riveted. You have a show centered around this individual, how do you do that? Again, that's Flanagan. It's perfect because we're going to see this individual character's journey. So the scene comes to an end as Riley, looking at the paramedic, turns back to the dead girl in the street, stares at her. The lights are continuously to flicker. The camera pans out as the music hits its crescendo and we are seeing the entire car accident site. And it just looks absolutely brutal. And that's and then we immediately go into the next scene, which is the courtroom scene. We hear a gavel. We see the victim's friends and family in the courtroom demanding justice. We see Riley. He's pled guilty. Eventually, the judge, again, I love it, voiced by Carla Gigina, um, who I love. I really do wish there was more of her in this entire series, not just the voice of the judge. She does most of the things that Mike Flanagan creates. So I wish I would have had her more, but I was happy to at least hear her voice. So Riley will eventually be sentenced up to four to 10 years in jail and have to pay the victim's family $140,000 restitution. We see Riley's parents in the courtroom as well. We eventually will see um, in the very next scene after Riley has been um, sentenced, he's in an orange prison jumpsuit. He's in jail. We see the doors close. He even gets a package. It's a Bible. It's pictures of his family, his brother, Aaron, played by Katie Siegel. We'll see a little bit more about their 
relationship a little bit later, but it's an incredible moment because he kind of, he looks at the Bible, there's a line that his mother writes down. We, we obviously are already being teased to their incredible religious conviction of his mother, but he kind of puts the Bible down. He lays down on bed. The camera is looking at him from above him, then pans down to his face as we can hear all the sounds of the prison going on all around him. It's really jarring. But I love that as he's laying down the can and he turns on his side, the camera will start to move and focus on his face as he's laying on his side. And then the camera starts to move towards him. But as it moves towards him, it starts to shift, but it's shifting until he is straight up. And then it jarringly cuts to the image of the dead girl that, that he had killed in that car accident. She has glass all over her face. She's staring right at him and it's police lights flickering off the glass on her face. It is a hard scene to watch because it goes back to his eyes. It'll go to her. It goes back to him and it goes back to her. It's a very emotional and powerful. The sounds are so eerie and captivating. We're seeing that Riley just keeps staring at her the entire time. It, there's an incredible emotional gravity to that moment that we are seeing an individual who knows he's guilty. Maybe he's remorseful, but he is haunted by the images of what he's caused and he has to deal with that. And so the scene will cut to black and we eventually see it'll say four years later, and we are now seeing an, an aerial view of Crockett Island. We even see a ferry boat making its way to Crockett Island. We're seeing incredible imagery of the island community itself. And I'm at ease when I see this type of community. I grew up in a fishing community. And so seeing Crockett Island, there's a comfortability in that. And even kind of seeing the island sign looking faded and old, it just, it works for me, which is another reason why I just love this show. So for our first major scene on Crockett Island, we're getting a good understanding of the kind of economic issues that are, that are affecting the island. It looks like an island that is pretty beat up and run down. Its best days are clearly in the past. Its future is bleak and worrisome. The people there on the island do not see a way out. And then eventually we're at the home of Ed and Annie Flynn, who are the parents of Riley, who is going to be getting out of prison now since it's four years later. Annie's actually on the phone with him. She's very upbeat. She's eager for him to come home. She's even telling him not to miss the ferry. And even Ed at this point is looking really annoyed, very gruff, somewhat angry at Annie for telling Riley things that he probably already knows. So he clearly has some pent up anger and aggression towards Riley for the crime that he committed and the, probably the, the, the economic stress that it put on the family. And so Annie's just talking to Riley and, and Ed doesn't want anything to do with it. He's even putting a record on, you guessed it, Neil Diamond, and it's going to be uh, Suleiman. So we're seeing this kind of conversation taking place and we're seeing Annie warning Riley. Warren about his friends who he hangs out with to stay away from the Uppards, which is an, another area of, say, Crockett Island. It's a little bit more remote, remote, a kind of hangout for younger teenagers. Again, I, I just love Kristen Lehman as Annie. Again, she has such command of this, this first scene. Annie is on the phone. She's excited. She's happy. She's even accidentally wrapping herself in the phone cord. She, she, she loves Riley. She loves her son. She wants him to come home. She knows he needs to come home. But this is an individual. She is a mother. She wants to be happy. She wants her family to be happy. As she's asking Ed to talk to Riley on the phone, he's like getting a cigarette. He's going out. He's like, and she's like, oh, Riley, he can't come to the phone. He He's excited to see you, though. It's like he never said any of those things. So we're seeing a woman that is in many ways the center of this entire family, keeping everything together with all these kind of personalities. And so the music is going on during this entire kind of end of this scene. It continues as we now follow Warren away from the home. He's biking through town. It gives us a really good understanding even for a second time what Crockett Island looks like and it looks rough again but the ocean as the background it just simply looks majestic I love it I love that the camera is following Warren on his bike from the side then it'll eventually follow him from the back again this is a island community where the road is dirt we have dilapidated homes as we'll learn later where people don't even bother to sell their homes they just empty them out move back to the mainland it's a kind of montage scene I guess you could say it's just going from location to location as we get a little bit more of an aesthetic. Again, it's a perfect way to build your location since this is the only place we'll really be is on the island. As a viewer, we want to kind of establish, well, what is this place going to look like? Bikes by the church. Again, as he rides by the camera pans towards a New England style church, the name of it being St. Patrick's Catholic Church. And eventually the sign to the right side next to, towards the rectory saying, welcome back Monsignor Pruitt for Sunday Mass. 
So as the scene kind of continues following Warren on his bike, he eventually makes it to the marina, and then we see Warren meet up with a friend named Ooker, as well as kind of another kid by the name of Ali, who we find out is Sheriff Hassan's son. But one of the most important parts of this scene is that while they are on the dock and they're waiting for a kid by the name of Bowl to get off of the ferry that has just docked there, who's going to be selling them drugs, we are seeing another man get off the vessel, who is Hamish Linklater, playing the character of Father Paul. He has this massive crate with him. When you do see him in this moment, the music kind of hits a weird tempo. And so it's really interesting because what it's alluding to you is that this is an individual of importance and prominence that you're going to have to pay attention to. Um, so we will eventually see the three kids right off. They'll even go by another character's home, Lisa. She's the girl that's in the wheelchair that's obviously is in the wheelchair because of an accidental shooting by the town drunk, I guess you could say, because we'll see him in a couple moments as well by the name of Joe. Warren really likes Lisa. So that's kind of a plot point that we'll see continue to kind of be brought up over the course of the entire series. Uh, Warren obviously invites Lisa because they're all going to be going to the upwards because that's where they're going to be kind of smoking and hanging out. Um, but Lisa's like, nah, I'm good. I really prefer not to smell like cat shit anyway, because as we'll find out, the upwards is known for having tons of stray cats. The next scene, though, is quite fascinating and quite interesting and really what I love about the work of Mike Flanagan. Randomly, the camera is is above a living room. So it's a wonderful scene construction by which your eye is at the top, you're looking down, you're hearing somebody starting to open a door and bring something very large in. And then the camera will be on the ground looking towards the door as a figure is now bringing this crate in. The music is quite ethereal. It's quite religious. It's quite eerie in many ways, as this individual is now dragging this massive human-sized crate into the living room and throughout through the doorway, and eventually will pan up once again. So at first we're watching, which would be Father Paul dragging this crate in, and now we're yet again above him. We see Father Paul kind of get to his knees, and he kind of taps the crate twice, and eventually we hear a knock back twice from inside the crate. You don't know what's going on, but it's a very eerie and the music is attached to it. And the way that the camera is above him looking down on him, it really makes it quite haunting. The scene will eventually cut to the three boys once again going to the upper. They're going to a place where they can eventually hang out. At one point, Uker will mention that he sees something above him, something like that had a huge wingspan, some foreshadowing here that, hey, what is this thing that's flying above them? Who knows? But that's what I'm saying. It's a very Jaws effect. You're not seeing anything. You're just hearing slight things here and there. Ultimately, while they're in the upwards, they're just having, they're, they're smoking, they're drinking, they're telling stories, and then they're hearing cats just scream constantly. And so Warren at one point shines his flashlight towards the cats and he eventually sees this shadowy figure with like piercing eyes. But ultimately it, it is quite a terrifying moment by which we get a glimpse of this monster. It's a good way to kind of get the heart pounding in what is a kind of, again, a lower tempo type of an episode for a first episode, but there's something amiss on Crockett Island. Now, the next couple scenes are going to move quite quickly, but are going to be packed fully with some important imagery. Now, it's the next morning, and we see a ferry making its way to Crockett Island. We actually see Riley at this point on the bow of the vessel. He looks older. His hair is buzz cut. The music is very solemn, somewhat ethereal, as I've said. We see Annie, his mother, is on the dock waiting for him. She's kind of holding her cross necklace as the ferry docks, and then eventually he gets off. He sees her. He looks, again, very sad, and she's just so excited to see him. Obviously, Ed, his father, Father Ed and his brother Warren are not there. He even asks why. And she's like, oh, they're on the boat. They can't afford to miss a shift. Um, as they're kind of walking away, we get our first uh, glimpse of Bev Keen, our big villain of the entire series and definitely this episode. And she's there to pick up Monsignor Pruitt. Uh, again, who is nowhere to be seen. Bev is pissed. She just doesn't understand how an 80-year-old man who most likely has dementia and Alzheimer's cannot be found. So she doesn't like being wrong either. Then the scene kind of quickly cuts to the medical office where we meet Dr. Sarah Gunning for the first time. She's there examining Erin, who's pregnant, just kind of making sure that the pregnancy is perfectly fine. They also introduce us to Sarah Gunning's mother, Mildred Gunning, who I've talked a little bit about earlier. Mildred Gunning, who definitely has dementia, she comes into the room thinking, it's hers. We just predominantly see Erin and Sarah kind of talking about her pregnancy, but they do look out the window and especially Erin sees Annie and Riley walking down the road. And obviously we know and have been teased that there is an ultimately an important connection between Erin and Riley. And so she looks quite pleased. 
Then the scene immediately kind of goes out the window, I guess you could say, and towards Anne and Riley. They're walking down the street. The music is very sweet. I love how the camera follows them from behind at first as they're kind of progressing into town. We see a dog. We see him getting treats by Sheriff Hassan. He says hi to Annie, introduces himself to Riley. So now we're going to follow Sheriff Hassan as he goes into the general store and eventually goes into the sheriff's office where he has Joe Cowley locked up for drunkenness who tried to break in the night before, was screaming about an album Albatross flying overhead. Wink, wink. Maybe that was the demon, this angel that the show is going to be focused on. The scene will eventually transfer to Bev Keen, who's yelling at the dog, who's barking at her outside. That is terrible foreshadowing. I'm not even going to get into the dog plot of this series. Bev, dog, Joe, nope, no thank you. Not talking about it. And so eventually what I do like about the next part of this episode is that we follow Annie and Riley. They're going to be walking home where, again, they're walking down all the dilapidated homes. She's even talking to him and telling him about the individuals who have left the island, who have decided to not even sell, but just get up and leave. She's very comforting. She's rubbing his back. She's telling him, welcome home, honey, welcome home. She just offers such compassion and caring. She knows that he's done something wrong, but he is her son. So the next scene, which focuses on Annie and Riley in the Flynn home, we see a really good conversation in Riley's boyhood home. I love the wonderful X-Files poster on the background. This is where Kristen Lehman, who plays Annie Flynn, is just, she just owns the scene. She's so good. I'll play the short clip of this conversation where we can really hear her show the care that she has for Riley and trying to make sure that the relationship between Riley and his father are perfectly fine. There's just a touchingness to her performance. Performance. And for Guilford's part, he's he's emanating a kind of an emotional range that just is someone that is so damaged, someone so broken that they're just unable to give more than is probably that is being asked of them. Really didn't show up. Don't look at it like that. You're home now. He's treating you normal. That's all. You don't know what it's like these days. You can only fish certain spots, certain days, crabs, certain spots since the spill three years since the spill. Yeah, which was bad enough. God only knows. I mean, you couldn't eat anything out of that water. Your father smelled like diesel every day he came home, even after they said it was all cleaned up. I mean, I thought the environmentalists were on our side. These limits, these retention limits going on about population decline, and suddenly there's a limit, but not for the oil company, for us, for the boats. You can only catch as much as they say. But they've never been watermen, never worked these waters. I mean, you want to talk population decline, let's talk about the people. The people on this island. They used to be hundreds. Now we're just dozens. This isn't a community anymore, honey. It's a ghost. He'd be here. If he could. Sure, Mom. That is truly just such an emotionally gripping scene. And again, Kristen Lehman just owns it. She has just kind of incredible range. She's even holding her coffee mug and just gripping it really hard and almost squeezing it as she gives this monologue. It shows that while she's talking about the issues like the spill and the problems for the community and the people that were supposed to protect them who are not, she's upset. And for Riley, he just looks so tragic in this moment. He seems so unsure of himself. He is frozen in time in his traumatic past. He's incapable of even imagining a future. And this is going to be continuously alluded to. And so for the next scene, we kind of move and shift to the local school where there's a meeting being held about the coming storm. But it's an interesting scene, mainly because of the fact that we are in being introduced to Sheriff Hassan in a much more presence and a much more powerful position. We meet the mayor of the town as well and some other of the community members. Aaron's there, Dr. Gunning's there, Bev Keen is there. And we see in many ways the ability of Bev Keen to continuously be racist. And she is a horrific human being. So even as Sheriff Hassan is trying to come up with some strategy, to deal with the storm and even kind of suggest the school to be a shelter for the community, Bev Keen will kind of be like, ah, oh, no, 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 absolutely not. No, St. Patrick's Rectory, the new rectory, is going to be the place where everybody goes, but you wouldn't know that. She just does so many microaggressions. She just cuts them down constantly. And I must say, the Sheriff Hassan, Raoul, again, great actor, he plays this perfectly. He just, he doesn't back down, but he doesn't feed into her shit either. Again, what we're really starting to recognize 
is one of the kind of key ingredients of the entire series. Bev Keen is brutal. She's racist. She is absolutely no true believer. But I will say this, Samantha Sloan, who plays Bev Keen, she does an amazing job. She, you can't help but hate her character, but you admire the performance. Absolutely. So I do love the kind of segue scene sometimes where we're seeing nice shots of the, say, the sun coming down, the beautiful ocean beyond Crockett Island. The sounds are also very amazing. We see, you know, shots of homes and boats, particularly in the marina. We're hearing wind in the background. It's just, it's very, it's very calming and soothing in a show that is very eerie, tragic, and dark and deep. So the next scene, we're in the Flynn Helm one again. We're having dinner. I love the heightened emotional state that is this dinner with the family. We have Ed, we have Warren. And we had Annie and as well as Riley. And they're kind of going back and forth and Warren talking about school and Miss Green and Riley being like, oh my goodness, that old bird is still teaching. Warren's like, no, 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 it's the young Miss Green. And he's like, oh, Aaron's back. So again, that allusion to their past. Annie even cuts in. They're talking about the fact that it's nice to have someone young actually come to Crockett Island and want to stay there since people just constantly are leaving. Again, they talk a little bit about church at this time, you know, Monsignor Pruitt about how he was 80 and he went on a pilgrimage. He went to the Holy Land to walk in the steps of Jesus. And Riley's like, really? That's that's okay. And so they're going back and forth in many ways. I don't want to say cutting down from our senior Pruitt, but that's how Ed takes it because he does get very angry at one point, mainly because Annie tells uh, Riley that he's probably going to see Aaron at church. And Riley's like, well, I don't go to church any longer. That really upsets Ed. He's like, oh, okay, you're, you're going to church tomorrow, Riley. Consider that a condition of your parole. So that dinner scene is really incredible. And I think that all the actors really have at least one one moment where they just kind of crush it and they own it. I actually think Henry Thomas does an amazing job as Ed Flynn, kind of standing up for his convictions, not wanting them to say anything mean about Monsignor Pruitt, and especially is clearly angry with Riley for everything that he did. I think all this is in many ways weighed on Ed and it's kind of bursting out onto the table as they're having this conversation. And now at the exact same night, we're going to shift the scene once again. And I love Flanagan's ability to go from scene to scene. I mean, he continues to give each character a real moment to shine. And so now we're going to be at the rectory. We see Bev Keen. She's fixing the sign outside St. Peter's Church. She sees a light on. She sees smoke coming out of the chimney. And so she's like, oh, Monsignor Pruitt must have gotten by me at the, at the ferry and is now home. So let me go and see if he's okay. And I love that she just kind of lets herself in. You know, the camera follows her. She goes in. She's cleaning up. Some of her comments are just so ridiculous. Everything is always about her. She doesn't see anybody. She's talking to someone like they're there, even though she doesn't even really know if somebody is there, but the lights are on. And she's like, oh, she's even kind of angry at Monsignor Pruitt for having left her at the dock. Like she, as she said, some jilted prom date. So I love that she's just carrying on and on and on about how inconvenienced that she is. And then she sees the crate. She kind of looks at the crate and she's talking about the sheriff and she's making fun of his name. And as she's investigating or inspecting the crate, we see the camera shifts like we had seen before. And it's behind the shadowy figure who she sees. And she's very startled. It clearly is not uh, Monsignor Pruitt. It's clearly a younger individual. And so she is quite alarmed. And we haven't been introduced to who this person is yet, but we will the next day. Eventually, we now go back to the Riley home. It's late at night. We're in Riley's room. He's sitting on his bed. Ed comes in to have a conversation with him. He's just letting him know, hey, listen, you know, your mother has been really having a difficult time about everything that's happened to you since the accident. And he's been going to church every single day. She prayed on the rosary for you. So again, we're really being infused with the kind of Catholic tradition. And he is really a devout individual and looks to the church in these times of difficulty. And so Ed even says, hey, listen, I know church is in for you. And Riley's like, no, no, it's not. He goes, hey, listen, just go to church tomorrow, but do not take communion. You probably haven't done any confessionals anyway, so you can't take communion. And he does say that this will probably upset your mother, but it would be wrong if you did it. So as this is the first episode of a seven-episode series, there's a lot going on in this episode, as I've been talking about. We do go from scene to scene. We're trying to get a lot of attention to each character, and this is similar for the next couple scenes as well. We're now going to Sheriff Hassan's home. He and his son, Ali, are praying. Again, they are Muslim. It's a really beautiful moment showing their religious devotion. Again, another dissimilar aspect of, say, Sheriff Hassan and Bev Keen. But it's a wonderful scene between Sheriff Hassan and his son, Ali. 
And then almost like I said, a montage, we, we continue to hear the kind of ethereal music taking place. We are at Sarah Gunning's home. We're seeing Mildred Gunning trying to go upstairs and Sarah's trying to help her. All of this is setting up these kind of components to what are going to be very important to the rest of the series by which we see individuals like Mildred Gunning starting to get better. But how is she getting better? Ultimately, that's very important. So we want to show how bad she is at this moment. So when she starts to get better and these miraculous events are taking place on Crockett Island, well, then there is something going on. And then eventually we cut back to Riley's room. And this is a really important scene as well. We see Warren sneaking out and Riley kind of waves at him. The music is still going, the very ethereal religious music. It's eerie. It's calm. And then we eventually see Riley lay in his bed, similar to when he was in his jail cell. The music stops. His eyes are staring straight ahead. The camera is getting closer and closer. And then again, just like when he was in the prison cell, turning. And eventually as it turns, and now he is straight up and down, the scene cuts to a girl standing. It's the girl that he had killed. The police lights reflecting off of the glass on her face. She's staring at him. It's a very intense cut scene by which it goes to her and then directly back to Riley, by which we even can see the reflecting police lights in his eyes. And so it's really, really, really deep. It's really a dark moment. And again, he's looking right in the same direction of the camera, right towards the girl that he had killed. You can even hear a kind of seagull squall as he closes his eyes and that eventually cuts to him alone in a rowboat in the ocean. We see oars on both sides of him and eventually cuts back to the girl. Once again, a close-up on her face this time. Very eerie sounds are even cutting into this moment as well. Again, it's a really good utilization of sound. And eventually it cuts back to Riley alone in the boat. He's looking sad. He's very reflective. It's And eventually then cuts into images of a church interior. It's nighttime. There is blood all over the walls. You can hear bells ringing. The candles in the church are all lit. It's a really freaky imagery. The camera's even moving towards the exit as you see the blood. It is a place of a massacre. And just as you're getting closer to the exit, it goes to a quick cut yet again to the young girl's face in the bedroom with the flickering police lights and then quickly cuts back to Riley on the boat alone. And then it cuts to the beautiful morning sunrise with a very red sky. Red sky at night, sailor's delight. Red sky in morning, sailors take warning. The storm is on the way. And that imagery in that scene that I just mentioned with Riley is showcasing everything that's going to be. So now it is Sunday Mass and we are going to finally learn the identity of, of the mysterious man on Crockett Island. So as the church mass begins, we see Ed, Annie, Riley, they've taken their seats. Lisa comes in in her wheelchair and is going to sit towards the front of the congregation, which will be an important thing later. Um, we eventually see the camera focusing on Riley as he's looking in the direction of Erin, who's seated by herself. She eventually looks towards him. They do eventually make eye contact, but he eventually looks down quite embarrassed and, and in many ways looking quite empty. But eventually Bev Keen begins the Catholic Mass, and it's such a performance to it, and I think that the episode in Flanagan just handles it perfectly. Then the procession and the hymn begins and the congregation sings, and we start to see the altar boys and the priests make their way up the aisle towards the front of the church. But eventually people start, are starting to look quite shocked, because as we know, it's there's no Monsignor Pruitt. He is not there. And so this is now going to be our first uh, depiction of Father Paul. It is a wonderful, wonderful initial appearance to the congregation. It is well-crafted. It's wonderfully choreographed. He then eventually turns to the congregation to welcome them. He even kind of says, good morning, and I know I am not the person that you expected to see. And Hamish Linkletter just owns it. The character eventually introduces himself as Father Paul and that Monsignor Pruitt is sick. And so he's trying to tell him that, hey, listen, I'm only here while Monsignor Pruitt gets better. He is there to help them, that they are not losing their pastor, and that he looks forward to meeting every single one of them when the Mass is over. Over. Hamish Linkletter, freaking amazing in this role. The way he's able to deliver his lines so eloquently with confidence, he just makes the character so believable. And so I love when he does the Our Father, and then eventually we see the music, and we eventually see Father Paul starting the Mass, and eventually the scene cuts to another part of the Mass by which they're they're taking the Eucharist, they're doing the body and the blood of Christ. I love how the camera is just panning to everybody, and eventually, as even the kind of imagery as he's doing the blood of Christ, and the camera is focusing above, really from the roof of, say, the church, looking down upon Father Paul. And so we're seeing not only him say, you know, the body of Christ and the blood of Christ, and eventually looking at the liquid inside the cup. Again, all of this is imagery and foreboding to things that are going to be important later, and I just love how Flanagan is setting it up. And so when Annie and Ed go up to get, get the bread, um, they eventually tell Riley to stand back, and that really does upset Annie. And so in the aftermath of the church scene, we're eventually going to see Father Paul outside. He's going to be introducing himself to the congregation. 
Annie Flynn, father. Annie Flynn. And this is my husband, Ed. Ed Flynn, father. And I noticed you sat back for communion. It got rather quiet, didn't it? My son, Riley, he's... Not exactly in a state of grace right now. Hey, look, I think that's great. Uh, turns out I'm not much used to people who are in a state of grace. Uh, Jesus, he, he didn't really have that much interest for those kind of people either. No, he seemed to go straight for those folks who weren't in a state of grace. They were his favorite people, turns out. They were the ones he called friends. Yeah, we can work with that. That scene is just so awesome. The interaction between Father Paul and Riley is just amazing. And so Linklater, once again, owning the moment, but Zach Guilford's facial expressions as Riley, just his appearance of loss and sadness just translates perfectly. Even kind of uh, Kristen Lehman as Annie, just kind of staying back, not saying anything, especially as Riley said that he's not exactly in a state of grace at the moment. She kind of just looks crushed, but she doesn't say anything. But Father Paul's monologue, just amazing. Again, priceless, just nails the point of what is this trueness of religious understanding at that time. Not that I'm a very religious individual, but I do love it when Riley welcomes him to the crock pot. Again, I love the nickname of Crocodile Island being the Crockpot. And I love that Riley will see Aaron and then eventually they will have their kind of first major conversation of the entire episode. And again, and it's in, and what a way to introduce these two individuals and the relationship that they've had in the past, two individuals after a long time coming back to their roots for different reasons. So he's going to walk her home. And I just love that when he asks Aaron if he can walk her home and they're leaving church, that you just, it pans to Bev Keen just watching them. Like, what the hell is she up to? Again, their walk is going to be what I love that Mike Flanagan does very often. It's the continuous shot and the camera will not break. And they just have a detailed several minute conversation, walking and talking. It is a powerful, powerful demonstration of the acting chops of Zach Guilford, as well as Katie Siegel. And she does, I mean, she is amazing in this, the facial expressions, the mannerisms, just the way, the body language of the both of them. It's one of my favorite scenes because of the ability to just capture the attention of the viewer. And I just admire Flanagan's use of this shot so that not only are we watching Riley and Aaron walking down the street of Crockett Island, but we're seeing all these things going on around them. So we're getting an understanding of Crockett Island, but also these two individuals. What is their issue that brought them back to Crockett Island? And I love that the conversation really, it's well-paced. It's slow in the right way because it allows for the conversation to, to go really deep. And in many ways for these two individuals to be reunited through loss and trauma and broken dreams and promises, just the expectations of what the world was going to offer you kind of crashing and burning. And for them to kind of have a real conversation, what has brought each other back and what they have been doing since, whether it's Aaron going into rock bands and doing her things in New York or how for him, it's like him never really finding any religion. He looked for it really hard, especially in jail. It's a wonderful back and forth conversation where you really have great character development. And this conversation between these two individuals, it sets them as the center of the entire show. And so their conversation in this moment is just absolutely and utterly beautiful. The scene between Riley and Aaron is finally broken as Flanagan takes us back to the church in a conversation between Bev Keen and Father Paul. And she's confronting him because of the fact that he wore gold on this day, even though it is an ordinary Sunday in the Catholic faith. In the Catholic faith, you only wear gold on feast days and special occasions. An ordinary day, you should wear green. And so she's kind of asking, why did you do that? And he says, well, you know, I couldn't find the green. I was unable to locate it. And so he kind of blames Pruitt for maybe having left it in in a random place because of his mental decline. What we're seeing here is that Father Paul knows exactly what he's doing. He sees this as a special occasion. This is his rebirth. And so the scene eventually cuts back to Riley and Aaron at Aaron's home now. Their conversation is continued, and this is a really powerful moment. In this scene, again, I do really believe that Riley owns it. He has such emotional power and gravity to what he says. But Aaron, the way in which that in this scene, she asks him how he is, it's like she's looking right into his soul. How are you, Riley? Hanging in. No, I mean, how are you? I don't know. It's kind of, it's kind of the whole thing. I don't, I don't know. I have no idea. I mean, in prison, it was easy. I had things to do, you know, count the days, count down the sentence, eat, sleep, breathe. It's all pretty carefully spelled out for you, regimented. But here, I have nothing. Am I going to get a job? Go 
go to school, I have no money, no prospects. I just, I just exist. No, that's it. I have absolutely no purpose at all. I'm just sitting in my parents' house, breathing and serving no purpose to anyone whatsoever. I'm just living, and that's the worst part because I shouldn't be alive, Aaron. So I don't know what I do here. I eat, sleep, walk home now, eat dinner, wait out this fucking storm. There you go. Do that. Ride out the storm tonight and then tomorrow. We'll see what tomorrow's all about. Find another project. I'm sorry for what you've been through. I'm really, really sorry. Riley's monologue there is just so sad. And he's in at one point, he's just almost breaking down. So there's just a wonderful, powerful and incredible kind of feeling towards this moment. Aaron's ability to kind of see him as he is. And I love how the music comes in on this moment. And even at the, as the conversation ends, Riley just takes a deep breath and kind of just looks up to the sky and well, the storm is coming. And so that's how we're going to see the rest of the episode unfold. The storm is now here. We eventually go to in many ways, a kind of, I don't want to say a montage scene, but we're going to jump around as the storm is starting to crash into Crockett's Island. First, we're seeing the sheriff and Sturge getting things ready, especially for the power grid and the marina. We eventually go to the Flynn home where we see Annie and Riley boarding up the house. The sky's getting darker. The rain begins. I love how they're showing all different areas of the island at this time. The ferry schedule is canceled. Rain is hitting the roofs. We hear wind chimes. This is an island that is about to be in the heart of a storm. And so it's an intense buildup and we have a nice musical score being added into that. We see Erin getting candles ready when we go to her home. We eventually go to Father Paul at his home next to the church. He's drinking coffee. He's right next to the crate. I love that the scene is at first above him, but so that we can see dirt all over the ground. The crate is open. There's dirt inside of it, but nothing in there. And so it's a really creepy scene. And then the camera will be next to him, looking at him. The storm, you're hearing it get louder and louder and louder. He's reading. And eventually you hear the thunder and then eventually the power goes out. And he just sits there in the dark, looking out the window, and then closes his Bible, takes a very deep breath, and just sighs. And then eventually we are now in the midst of the storm, and we're going to see ourselves in the Flynn household. We're actually with Riley in his bedroom. He's looking out the window, and he sees something. He sees what looks like Monsignor Pruitt because he's wearing the fedora hat. He's wearing the trench coat, things that Monsignor Pruitt was always known to have worn. And so when Riley sees this, he's, he begins to be worried. Why is Monsignor Pruitt, who's supposed to be on the mainland, sick? Now on the beach outside their house, looking towards the ocean and walking around. Again, that isn't Monsignor Pruitt. Eventually, the storm is gaining powerful. And when he goes to the family, he's telling them what he sees. They look outside. They don't see it. And so Riley now runs outside into the rain. He is on the beach now. He's running towards what he sees as Pruitt. Figure eventually sees him and runs the other way. This figure is running fast, like not human fast, fast. Riley runs after him, eventually falls, gets back up. He's running. There's lightning. There's thunder. There's intense rain. And Riley's unable to catch up to the figure. But the next morning, I love how the scene kind of opens up. Beautiful blue skies. There is trash and things everywhere because the storm has dumped everything next to the Flynn home. The phones are down. And so Annie Flynn's like, hey, listen, let's let's go settle this. Let's go to the rectory because Riley's still worried that that was Monsignor Pruitt. And so the episode will end by which we see seagulls flying over the beach. Riley's eventually like, hey, dad, what's this? And they all go down to the beach and they see that there are just cats everywhere. Tons and tons and tons of dead cats. And so that's how our episode ends with the kind of squawk of a seagull and it goes to black. Episode one, book one, Genesis, is such a slow burn. The show simply gets better and better and ends beautifully. While episode one offered me everything I want from a first episode of a truly remarkable show, there were other moments, especially those involving Riley and Father Paul or Riley and Aaron, to name a few, that just had me on the edge of my seat and captivated from beginning to end. Each episode of Midnight Mass is set up with an emotional gravity that feels unnerving, even if profound. The characters are smartly written and effectively developed. Flanagan showcases these character undercurrents with incredible cinematography and vibrant colors to offer a haunting realism. Soft, dialogue-based, slight brevity, but emotionally impactful. That is why I had such a positive reaction to the first episode. I just knew I would love this series. 
Midnight Mass is a monster show where the monster is not the ultimate evil, simply a nightmarish device humans use in a nefarious way. As the series alludes to, the real tragedy lies with human guilt, addiction, and intolerance. Yes, it's a show with a vampire, or an angel, or a demon, or one of that combination. Yes, it's a show with jump scares and mayhem, yet the terror is with those who blindly saw good in the eyes of a demon and used Bible verses, holier-than-thou claims, and superiority to make it an angel. Midnight Mass is a fine example of originality and one hell of a fantastic show. And this episode does what all intro episodes should do for limited series. It builds solid foundation, structure, in which all the things that I've just talked about are going to be beautifully arranged on top of, and they cannot fall through it like quicksand. So that wraps up this episode of Must Rewatch TV. And I do hope you enjoyed this discussion of Mike Flanagan's limited Netflix series, Midnight Mass, and our episode of Focus, Book One, Genesis. But as always, I want to hear your thoughts. If you feel so inclined, please leave a comment. You can get in touch with me at mustrewatchtvz at gmail.com or on Instagram at mustrewatchtvz. Let me know what you think about this episode of Midnight Mass. Are you a fan of the slow burn like myself? Or do you enjoy getting straight to the point and catapulted into the heart of action? A series seeped in the Catholic performance, beautifully interwoven dialogues, and tons of cinematic magic? Oh, and don't forget Hamish Linkletter. Midnight Mass is a show to watch, rewatch, and remember, but maybe you would have selected a different episode. If so, which one? Don't forget to show the love and support by subscribing to the podcast and get notified of every new episode as soon as it drops. Join me next time and save me a spot at the bubbler as I rewatch and then discuss some wicked awesome TV.